Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Our guest is Dr. Mike Walden. He's been with us, I don't know how many times, but uh, plenty. And we always look forward to his insight because he's someone that can uh, explain the economy and what's going to uh, likely to happen and how it will affect us in terms that even I can understand. And that's saying a lot. Uh, Mike, uh, we uh, want to talk first. Uh, we want to talk about this infrastructure deal and that was the compromise that came out this week uh, and uh, apparently it's going to be passed into law now. But before we do that, are you working on any books? Uh, you are always uh, very prolific in uh, writing interesting books. What are you working on right now? I am. I think I'm a book addict, both in terms of reading and in terms of actually also writing. Amazon, Amazon Box will probably be on our front porch uh, every three or four times a week with another book. Uh, my big problem is where to store them. Uh, I think I've dedicated a wing almost to the NC State Library. Uh, but yes, I am working. It's always for Amazon getting into everything else because they started out just selling books. That's yeah, that's sold. right. That's, that's the main way I use Amazon is through books. And that you're right. That was Bezos' first uh, first venture. Uh, I am working on a new book, which I think is uh, very apropos. It's a book about the post-pandemic economy, but primarily in terms of how it could impact families. Uh, where families work, uh, how they work, uh, whether uh, remote working and maybe a remote location can help families deal with their constant choices they have to make in terms of time and money and uh, demands on their time, fast-paced life where you really can't sit and smell the roses. So I have a number of chapters looking at, at how in the future we may be able to not, not only have a work delivered to us remotely, how we can have medicine delivered to us remotely. I have a chapter on how retail trade is going to change, for example, the role of drones in delivering products. Uh, I talk about the real estate market, how the people were to move out of the big metropolitan areas to a small town, say at Kinston or uh, a small town, Murphy, North Carolina, wherever, as long as you get high-speed internet, how you could cut your housing costs in half and maybe be able to get rid of one of your vehicles. So it's a focus on, on a perhaps a, a new way of living that we could we could have post-pandemic uh, that could perhaps elevate the standard of living a lot of folks who now have, have to live in a metropolitan area, but may not have to in the future. Interesting. And I'm uh, looking forward to that. And of course, uh, Mike also has a number of other books that are already out. You can find those out by going to Amazon, for example. Yes. Um, like we'll do... Uh, <laughs> Talk about the infrastructure uh, deal that was struck this week. Um, this has been in the news. And uh, um, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that's sort of interesting is while the Democrats have control of the House, the control in the Senate is so so very thin. It only takes one senator to knock it out from being in uh, control. And so uh, for all practical purposes, the Senate still has the right to uh, hold up uh, the major proposal that uh, uh, President Biden proposed initially on infrastructure. Uh, but uh, I think he was well aware of that. I'm not sure that the rest of his Democratic Party uh, felt as uh, much uh, a sense of compromise as perhaps he did. But uh, so who are the winners and losers on this and, and, and how is this going to work out? And what do you think about it? Well, uh, yeah, the president initially, or I guess it's still out on the table, uh, uh, offered an infrastructure uh, bill, which is, I think, a couple trillion dollars. 
The controversy there is that he had what we call traditional infrastructure, which are usually hard products like roads, bridges, internet, I think most of us would consider internet now infrastructure, uh, railroads, ports, et cetera. But he added to that what, what economists would call social infrastructure, uh, human capital, which, which is actually a concept of economics where your skills uh, are just as important as, as the road you travel in. So he had money in there for, for, to help people rescale childcare and some other things. And that was uh, a point of contention, particularly with Republicans. And so his big infrastructure bill has not gone anywhere. So what's been happening in the last several weeks is a small group, I think it's about 10 senators, bipartisan, I think actually five from each party have been working together. And they've, they pretty much have taken just the traditional infrastructure part and then they've been working amongst themselves to get agreement. And then they've been working with the administration. And today there, there was an announcement that they've all agreed and the president has agreed to back this smaller traditional infrastructure plan. I think they've, they've, they've agreed how to pay for it. Uh, I think it's uh, under a trillion dollars, but it would be money going to traditional things like roads, bridges, uh, airports, uh, uh, internet would be the big new thing there. Now, this this obviously has to go through both chambers, and there's no assurance it would go pass in the House. No assurance because of what you meant. You, you said, uh, Don, with the Senate. Senate, of course, was structured by our founding fathers to be much more difficult to get things passed. It was sort of the the uh, counter to the House, where all you, all you need is a simple majority. But I think most people view this as positive. That first of all, we have something that's bipartisan. And secondly, the administration is agreeing with it. And I think everyone agrees in terms of traditional infrastructure, there are a lot of needs out there, a lot of needs to, I, I had an uh, occasion, I had to be down in um, Elizabethtown the other day, and of course, uh, rode down I-95, a lot of construction there, still a lot of bumps. I mean, anyone drives around North Carolina knows we need some improvement there, as well as internet. If we can get in a high-speed internet in every nick, nick and uh, corner, of North Carolina, every rural area, every small town, that, that is an enormous advantage to being it for those towns to sell themselves to businesses, if not simply to households and say, hey, if you're a remote worker, come live here, say in beautiful Goldsboro. And uh, you can have a small town atmosphere, a lot less costly and still get your work done. So I think that's gonna be key to our urban-rural divide and narrowing that urban-rural divide here in North Carolina. Well, broadband, of course, I think nothing uh, advances cause any more than the pandemic because all of a sudden we realize we had two great lessons we learned. One is that uh, telemedicine does indeed have quite a future uh, yes. in uh, those smaller communities and also uh, instruction. Uh, mm -hmm. Both of them uh, were shown up to be a significant need. How long will it take to get the infrastructure in and broadband? What, how, what, if the money's there, how long does it take to sort of complete the job? Well, this is an interesting question, Don, because I think it hinges upon how is the internet going to be provided. I mean, when people think of internet now, most people think of, for example, I'm in West Raleigh. Google just went by and they buried their lines underground. Uh, I don't use them, but I have a service that traditional way it's it's uh, strung from the telephone cord. But anyway, it's cable. You have to put out cable. And the reason rural areas haven't gotten that is that uh, to go down a road in a, in an urban area, you might get 10, 15 people uh, latch on. If you go down a road in a rural area, maybe you get one or two. The economics don't work out. 
but that's the way it could be provided. But I think the exciting thing is that there are people who think that all of us, maybe not just rural people, will get internet from the sky. And I don't mean the, tr the satellite internet we now have. Those things, those satellites are like 25,000 miles up. That's why there are problems often. This is what's called low orbiting satellites, around 500 miles up. And they're better quality, better speed, et cetera. And none other than Elon Musk. Uh, is is really moving fast on that. He's he's got the re reusable rockets to get the satellites up. He already has prototypes up there. So I'm not convinced <clears throat> that when all is said and done, that that many of our rural areas might not get satellite from these these low or might not get internet from these satellites. So I think that's something that um, that that we've yet to see. And actually, the federal government through the FTC has been putting some money in Musk's ventures. So. Um, um, that's going to be exciting to watch. Well, uh, as I said, I think we all learned during the pandemic how important it is. And I think uh, it's one of the things that seems to have great bipartisan support. Um, I know a, a legislative bill in North Carolina passed, I think, of unanimous, as I recall. Mm -hmm. uh, let's move on now to uh, your forecast. <laughs> I hate to ask you this because they always put you on the spot. What do you think is going to happen to the stock market the rest of the year? <laughs> well, I always like to go back and hearken to Milton Friedman, who, when I ask that, would invariably say it's going to fluctuate. Uh, I think this, you know, there are always multiple factors here. I think, number one, the stock market likes the fact the economy is growing. We're probably going to have a very rapid GDP growth rate this year. We're, we're, we're going to add the jobs that obviously makes companies more profitable, makes uh, people able to afford things. We still got the stimulus money in there that I think will help buy. But what, what might hold the stock market back are inflation and interest rates. Stock market doesn't like higher inflation. It doesn't like higher interest rates. So I think we're going to have a, a battle between those two. I think the, the economic growth, I think, is set. I think where the disagreement is, is how, how, how much of a problem is higher inflation going to be? I mean, I already have seen it, but what, is it going to last? And will interest rates go up significantly? I think if that happens, we could we could see maybe the stock market be stopped in its tracks, maybe retreat a little bit. So um, uh, and that makes it hard for investors. No, that's why I don't I don't give specific forecasts on the stock market because I don't know. Uh, I, again, my standard advice is always uh, diversify, especially if you're in my age category, seventy and above. Uh, you're close to you know, your life uh, being fulfilled. You want to have access to that money eventually, and you don't want to worry about market timing. Just have a diversified portfolio. Probably as you age, you move a little more towards safety. Consider things like annuities. That'll give you a, a specific amount for as long as you live, but uh, very, very hard to time the stock market. Well, you know, uh, of course, I, I, I'm older, older than dirt, and so I remember those <laughs> days back in the mid 70s where interest rates the prime rate got into the 16 17 oh, yeah. range mm -hmm. yeah my first mortgage was double digits yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And so we're, we're not talking about that kind of interest rates we're no talking no, about I, one no i no i don't think we are we're, we're talking about again inflation i mean right now we're riding around five percent with the blast over the last year maybe up to six percent but i don't see us going into double digit rates uh, which means that maybe the average mortgage will go up, uh, what are we at? I don't know, three, four percent, a micro up two percentage points. So, yeah, um, certainly better than it was in the late 70s, early 80s, but much more concerning compared to where we've been. I mean, the, 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 the century, the 21st century 
uh, has been a century of very, very low inflation, very, very low interest rates. And, and other than the uh, uh, stock market drop during the uh, Great Recession of 2007-2009, it's been very, very good for the stock market. And I think that shows you the stock market does well when you've got low inflation, low interest rates. So that's what I would keep my eyes on in terms of concerns about the stock market, those two factors. The stock market and uh, all the economic uh, factors should be pleased with the way that uh, President Biden is repairing our relationships with our European friends. Uh, true, I think. Yeah, I think. Um, uh, I, th I think the, the stock market likes certainty. I think what they see in President Biden is they sort of know where he stands vis-a-vis vis-a-vis these uh, international agreements like. Uh, Paris Accords and whether you agree or not, Paris Accords, NATO, et cetera. I think President Trump was a little more of a disruptor and you didn't really know where he stood. And so, now some say that, well, you know, there were some benefits to that he, he, he was a disruptor unpredictable. That made it hard for our enemies to figure him out. But I think I think overall, uh, President Biden's a little more predictable. Uh, he's got a track record there so people know where he's going. So in terms of having an environment where you know what tomorrow's gonna look like, uh, investors probably feel better in that regard with the current administration. What would be the tip for us to watch for, for rising interest rates? What uh, thing can a consumer look at and say, okay, this is probably, uh, for example, if the, the supply chain returns to normal, will that slow things down? No, if the supply chain returns to normal, that's good for keeping interest rates lower because that means that we're, we're getting more production. Uh, that, that, and that's, that's really the point of those folks who say inflation is not a problem. They argue this is just temporary and, it's, and we're getting 5% inflation now because those supply chains are not fully back. And so that group, this group of economists say once that supply chain gets fully back, once we get all the jobs that need to be filled, once we get people in those jobs, we're back. Uh, then we're going to have normal production. We're not going to have these backlogs. You're going to get products when you need them for your production, and that's going to calm inflation down. So that's the betting of the folks who think inflation is not going to be a long-run problem. They think, yeah, it's temporary. It's high right now. People don't like it, but it's not going to be a long-run problem because we're going to get the supply chains back. And when would that occur? Again, I would think if, you, if you're in that camp, you're probably looking at end of the year. The things will be back to more of a normal situation. Our guest is Mike Walden, and we all have one final segment coming up right after these messages. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities, He's been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them. But I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives. But he was there beside me. And my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash our stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking it questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. 
flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Dr. Mike Walden is our guest, and we've talked about all sorts of things, basically the economic situation that we find ourselves in these days, uh, our economic recovery from uh, the pandemic and the job markets and uh, all that sort of thing. And we've talked about interest rates and, and possibly inflation. One thing we have not talked about are the cyber attacks uh, that we've had. Uh, Mike, th this, is a, this is a wild card. This, I mean, this can really be disruptive to almost any industry. Uh, the uh, ransom uh, that uh, some people are having to pay to stay in business is, uh, is surprising. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I read a book, uh, Don, a, a couple of weeks ago, a new book written about space. And it wasn't in terms of exploration and, uh, and sort of trying to find other life, that kind of thing. It was a strategic look at space and how space is the next area of where you're going to have military competition. And the, you know, it was just very, very um, uh, troubling. The author talked about how there's already technology that maybe the Chinese have, even the North Koreans have, where they could turn everything off in our country. I mean, not just selected industries, just everything. The country go totally without any power or, or light or anything due to an attack from space, particularly on the satellites that we have in space. So uh, very, very uh, disconcerting. Of course, the other side, if we have the same power on them. Well, this, that's true. And uh, although this author claimed we maybe, we maybe weren't pushing as, as fast ahead as some of our, as some of our adversaries, but uh, yes, I mean, the, um, um, uh, I'm not a, I'm, I mean, I spent a little time in, in the military and ROTC, but I certainly don't have any background there, but I can always remember the, the danger of fighting the last war, that, you, that you, you build up your defenses and build up your, your offensive tactics based on the last war, and you forget about, hey, people are trying to change the last war to the new war, and I think the author's point is, this is where a lot of the competition is going to come, military from space and that fits in very much to the cyber attack so yeah i think that's uh that's a very very big danger i hope we got a wake-up call from the two cyber attacks and i hope maybe there's some money and if we do have a new physical infrastructure bill maybe there'll be some money to help us with our with our electric grid etc but yeah clearly that's a, that's a whole new dimension to our to our security so let me ask you this, how, uh, generally speaking, how would you rate the North Carolina economic situation, the North Carolina economic health compared to other states, both in our region and across the country as well? Uh, I would rate it very, very good. And I'm talking in anger. I mean, of course, we have issues just like other states have issues. But Don, if you look at the, the two major metrics that most people looked at at the state level to sort of compare states to states during the pandemic, one, of course, was the death rate, the COVID-19 death rate. Uh, the other was job loss. And then, of course, you express both of those numbers on a per capita, per person basis. And if you do that for all 50 states and you sort of think of a four quadrant presentation where you got some states that are high on both, New York State would be another one. You have other states that are low on both. And then you have states in between high on one, low on the other. North Carolina was in that, that coveted quadrant of low on both. 
In fact, we I think we had the lowest uh, COVID-19 death rate per capita and the lowest job loss rate per capita of any state in the Southeast. So I think North Carolina is going to come out of this and is coming out of this pandemic with a very, very strong reputation for being what I call a safe state getting through this pandemic about the best way any state could. And I think that's gonna bode very, very well for companies considering coming to North Carolina, for people relocating here in North Carolina. So I'm actually upping my growth rates for the state, uh, long run growth rates for the state. For example, rather than having 13 and a half million people in 2050, which I predicted in, in one of my books, I'm gonna probably pump that up to about 14 million. I think we are going to see more people come into North Carolina, more businesses come into North Carolina, more entrepreneurship, more growing of businesses here in the state. Of course, we have issues. We have folks who are at the lower part of the economic ladder. We need to make sure they get the right skills to move up. We have issues in terms of geographic divides. We've talked about that. I'm actually optimistic with the possibility of getting high-speed internet all over the state. So I'm, I'm very, very optimistic about North Carolina. I think we, we have a great state. I think we got through the pandemic just about as well as any state could, and I think we've got a great future. If you were uh, on a program in New York City, uh, and I ask you the same question, what would your response be for uh, New York State, but more specifically New York City? I'd, I'd be troubled. Um, and not that New York State or New York City doesn't have great economic assets, they do. There are some things that only New York City can offer. There's some ministries that are that are headquartered there, uh, but New York City, of course, has been troubled by a lot of crime, increases in crime, uh, safety issues, et cetera. I think that's going to be the challenge of the of the new mayor, whoever that is, that they need to to do whatever needs to be done to present New York City as still a safe place that people can live in, that they can visit, that businesses can do business in. Uh, so I would be I would be very very. Um, um, challenged by what's happening in New York City. I think I mentioned, I just freaked, uh, just went back to my hometown of Bessemer City, which is mm -hmm. six miles from town. And Kings Mountain will, on July 1 or thereabout, will be opening a casino. It's a temporary yes. building at first, but they're going to have a big, a big, big, big casino operation in Kings Mountain. How's that going to affect that area? And what will that mean for the state of North Carolina? Now that we have a casino on I-85. <laughs> well, you, you have obviously opposite camps on that. There are people who say we, we state shouldn't legalize gambling. State shouldn't be involved in the gambling. So we shouldn't have a lottery that, that it's a lose-lose for most people. But the other camp says, look, people are going to do it. Uh, and you might as well have them spend their money here. Uh, I think if properly uh, presented and, and, and properly staffed and, and particularly have the casino in an area that had some other amenities besides just the casino, I think it can be a positive for the local community. Virginia uh, just recently um, loosened their standards on allowing casinos. I know, um, I think uh, Danville is, is opening a casino. They're trying to attract people, for example, from the, from the Triangle. So I think there's a lot of interest there. Uh, I think the more casinos there are, probably the less positive impact they might they might bring for an area because you're going to be spreading that money around many different places. As you look at the legislation pending on the federal level and also the state level, uh, what do you see that we should be concerned about and how might that affect some of the uh, projections that you've talked about? 
Well, of course, one of the things that's going through the General Assembly right now being debated is whether the state should get to uh, stop receiving that extra $300 a week for unemployed people. I think the Senate, uh, was correct, I stand me correct, I think the Senate, uh, initial Senate vote was positive on that. Uh, of course, that's that's going to be sunsetted in, in September anyway, so that's a big debate. But the other fascinating thing for me about the General Assembly is we're in the budget period, and, the, and North Carolina is flush, flush with money. Uh, if you compare the budget projections uh, for the General Fund Don that were made by the Fiscal Research Division in February to the ones that were just released, I think, two weeks ago, the Fiscal Research Division upped their forecast for general revenue uh, monies by $6 billion for the current fiscal year and the next two fiscal years, up by $6 billion. So the general... What, 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 what contributed to that? What, it, was all, such a it, it was all the money coming in from the feds, $81 billion from all the, the, the COVID programs coming in. That, a lot of that money got spent, so it gets taxed by sales tax, became income to some people, et cetera. And we're seeing this around the country. A year ago, I, I, I live across the street from the Vice Chancellor for Finance at NC State. He was very worried about NC State's budget. There have to be layoffs. He said maybe even layoffs of faculty. That would be severe. Right now, uh, NC State and most state agencies are flush in money. So I think that's going to be a challenge. And of course, uh, there are those in the General Assembly say, hey, we want to give some of this money back to citizens. So there's, there's a strong faction who wants tax cuts. There are others saying, no, no, this is our chance to spend on things that we've not been able to have the money to spend on, have the money to spend on in the, in the, in the past. So we're, we're obviously going to have a debate here. And of course, you've got there are three, three, three actors in this debate. You've got the Senate, and you've got the House, and you've got the governor. But very, very different situation this year than last year when everyone was worrying. Uh, they, were, they were concerned about how tight the belt was going to have to be pulled. And now this year, it's the belt has just flown off, and uh, there's just money everywhere. Well, and, and of course, you know, nine times out of ten, uh, having too much money can be just about as big a problem as having too little. Because you get a little haphazard about it, and sometimes you throw it around uh, more, much more generously. So that, that while that's nice to have that problem, it does not also have some unintended consequences that might occur because of it. Oh, absolutely! One of them, Don, is that if this this the surplus, the six billion dollars over the, the current and the next two fiscal years, is due to that COVID money coming in, and that and that COVID money isn't going to come in forever. We're going to stop, presumably. Uh, then you go back to a smaller budget. So I think the question there is, do you want to do a lot of things with money that make where you're making one-time expenditures like infrastructure, or do you want to put it in programs uh, that you're going to have to support every year and maybe what if you don't have the revenue in future years? So yeah, a lot of challenges here, even when you are flush with money, uh, just like you have challenges when you don't have money. Well, I, I guess I'm going to end the program the same way we started it, Mike, by just simply saying that Compared to last March and especially last April, um, things are uh, uh, so much better than we feared they might be that I guess we should all be celebrating. Well, I think we are. I mean, I think number one for me is the vaccinations. We got the vaccines. Uh, I, I've been I've had my two for, for a long time and we're now able to go out without masks a lot of places. I mean, things are getting back to normal. Obviously, we mourn those people, I think, what, 13,000 in North Carolina, 600,000 in, in the nation that, that died from, from COVID-19. We mourn those. 
but uh, we're still largely intact. Uh, the economy is coming back. Uh, people are smiling again. We still have issues uh, and, and uh, we still need to work on my, one of my biggest concerns, Don, and we have mentioned is that I do think that technology is going to become a bigger player in how jobs are done, which means that people don't, who don't have a good skill may find themselves out of work. So I think we do need to be watchful of people who may be in business industries that start to change how they do work and whether we see a lot of people laid off and whether we need to be ready to reskill those people on the upside. So uh, I, I think a lot, we're always gonna have challenges, but I'd rather have these challenges that are related to economic growth rather than challenges that are related to uh, a recession. Mike, wonderful. And thank you so much for your comments. You've given me just enough time to tell everyone if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. CarolinaNewsmaker.com. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he'll have another interesting guest for us again next week on the same group of stations all across North Carolina. So until next week, same time, same station. Have a nice week. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to CarolinaNewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.